you glad to be here today? I, uh, I'll be honest with you, I struggled the first service, uh, probably just uh, losing an hour of sleep last night. Um, I'm still glad to be here anyhow. I'm glad to see each and every one of you. It's going to be a great time together in the Word. I think, I think I have something that will be a blessing to you in the continuation of this worldview series that we're doing. I'm going to be baptizing two at the close of the service today, so it's a new day for those two. It's a, a new beginning, a fresh start in the lives of these two. We're excited to celebrate with them. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me one more time. How many of you enjoyed that worship this morning? So appreciative. Give all of our team a hand today. What a blessing it is to serve with these guys and gals and people that love Jesus. We are so grateful to Michael and Nikki Rushing and Quality Flooring. They did the whole platform, new carpet, all the way across. We had to strip everything off and rewire. And uh, so this morning, it meant real dedication for our media team and our sound guys and all of our praise team got here at 7.30. Now, really, that's 6.30 on our regular body time, okay? <laughs> so I just, uh, let, one more time, I want you to give all these guys a hand. So we got here this morning to work all the kinks out and to try to do the best we could, and they did wonderfully, and then I feel like I didn't do so hot in the first service and preaching. I was a little scattered. And so I'm just asking the Lord, I'm confessing to you right now, help me, Jesus. Uh, as, we, as we do this this morning, I want to be very clear I want to do a better job than I did the first. That's one thing about two services. I can do better the second time. Uh, the title of the message today is called Begin with the End in Mind. And I want to read two simple verses of Scripture. Find a, board, a, a screen and read with me. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's our series text we've been doing over and over and over. If you would read with me now one more verse found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is the promise that we're waiting for. Here we go. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We believe that at some point in history, God will cause heaven and earth to kiss together and be united. And we will live on a fresh, newly renovated, I believe God's made all things new in heaven and in earth wherein dwells righteousness, and that is our longing. That's what God made us for. We are built for a situation where there is, it's a no-sin zone, and I'm longing for that. My whole body's crying out for that. That is our promise of the future that we have, a new heaven and a new earth. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Bow your heads with me, please. God, I just I come to you today. I need you. just need strength. I just ask you, Lord, to bring above and beyond clarity in my thinking. I don't want in any way to, to be scattered or to bring confusion. I want the Word of God to go forth in the power that it carries all by itself. But I want to be specific. I want to be clear. And I, I beg you, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Bring understanding to the hearts and minds of your people. We'll be careful to give you the praise. I can't do anything apart from you. But thank you, Lord, that I'm not apart from you, that Christ is on the inside of me and that uh, because of Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thank you for that. We'll be careful to give you all the glory and praise and all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. This is number five in the series called Blueprint. We are, appreciate everybody's encouragement. Um, we are 
just plugging along in trying to bring some understanding in what's happening, what's going on in the world around us. Trying to make sure that we're looking through a, a set of lenses that are helping us to really distinguish reality. We've talked about a lot of stuff in the four messages previous to this, and today I'm not going to go back. It's too many. It would take too much time. But I do want to just tell you that victory is a place where we serve a real God. We're real people. We live in a real world. And so we, we confront real issues. We, we confront the product sometimes of ideas and worldviews that have been maybe part of our Christian heritage that we have to question and challenge a little bit. So this morning I'm going to be doing a little bit of that and just sort of give you a little bit of a warning, a heads up that this may challenge some things, maybe new and fresh, uh, maybe, maybe new to you and that you've never heard it before, but I want to assure you that it's clearly built and based in the Word. The second in the series was called Begin at the Beginning. And I want to take the time to do, just to the review on that one. That is because a biblical worldview has to be made up of four things. We have to have an understanding of creation. So fill in your blanks. Creation is recognizing, looking at the world through the lens of creation and our worldview and our biblical worldview that we're building. We understand that God made all of this. That's why we're here. That's how we got here. He intended it to be very good. As a matter of fact, he stepped back at the end of the sixth creation day. And he saw all of the creation and man in his relationship to it. He had already given man his helpmeet, Eve. And he stepped back and he said, Behold, it is very good. End of every creation day, God said it's good. He was satisfied at the end of his day's work. And at the end of the sixth day, the end of the creation week, he looked. God is up here. Creation is down here. Man is in the middle. It's important that we keep that perspective correct I think there were about 20 of you who came out for um, Chip Bueller's Biblical Worldview Seminar, and he talked about the relationship of man to God and man to creation down here. New Age philosophies attempt to raise man up to this level and make us gods, little G's, and raise us up in a divine spark, so to speak, and that's not correct. God is above us. He is creator. We are creation. Um, Darwinian evolution attempts to lower us to just to be like one of all the other animals in that there is no distinction. As a matter of fact, they won't even use the term creation, but they, they use biology in terms of life. That man is really no different. We're just an animal driven by urges and instincts the way all the other animals are. We're just a bundle of chemical equations and chemical reactions. <clears throat> and both of those are out of balance because man is not on the level with earth and created animals. He is in between. He's supposed to steward, lead, have dominion, subdue. Genesis 1 talks about the cultural mandate. And I've held my hand up here on purpose because God is up here separate from us, transcendent. He is the creator. Man never will be, even in the fact that we are new creations in Christ, will we ever be God. God is God. Some of His attributes He shares. His love his hope, his joy, his grace. We can learn to be gracious. We can now, out of a new nature, learn to show mercy. We can learn to walk in justice and righteousness. But the elements that separate God from us are his attributes of eternality. He is forever existing, is, was, and ever shall be, outside of time, dwelling above time, 
We are finite. God is infinite. Uh, we are limited in our knowledge. God is omniscient. We are limited in our strength and power. God is omnipotent. Uh, all of those, we, we are limited, localized. I can only be in one place at a time. Now, unless you, I, I can turn on here and go Skype to the other part of the world, but I'm only over there in an image. I'm not literally there in my person. God is all places at all times in the fullness of his presence. We call that om, omnipresence or the ubiquity of God. So a little bit of a theological opening this morning. Creation is down here. Creator is up here. Man is in between, okay? So we understand that God made this thing very good. That's why we're here. That's who we were called to be. But now something happened. We're in a mess. Uh, the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled. They committed high treason. They disobeyed God. That's why we're in the mess we're in. That's why the world's in the shape it's in. That's why I'm in the mess I'm in. And God now, since the new creation in me, has been making all things new in my life. The old is gone, the new has come. Say amen. Number three, do we have a way out of this? We preach this in number two, and it's the only one I'm reviewing this morning. And that is the idea of redemption. Jesus Christ has come as the last Adam to demonstrate how to do it and how to fix the mess that the first Adam created. And he did that through the finished work of the cross and it was confirmed by the resurrection, which we're going to be celebrating around here on March 31st. Invite some friends. We'll have two pack services, probably add 100 chairs in here in a couple of sections. And it's always a great day. A lot of folks bring friends on Easter. It's a wonderful time to get introduced to the ministry, the message of Victory Church. We're excited about that. It's coming just around the corner. The last one, number four, is where we're to actively be involved. Everybody say restoration. Restoration is the part that the church is to play. Since the resurrection, which was Jesus' statement, the beginning of the new creation, he has been making all things new since then. Closing two chapters of the book of Revelation in the Bible, it says, Behold, I make all things new. Now, have you ever noticed that it didn't say, Behold, I make all new things? What did it say? Behold, I make all things new. There's a difference in making all things new and making all new things. Making all new things involves blowing something up and starting from nothing again, ex nihilo. But God is not going to do that. He is about the business of a renovation pro project. God is a cosmic DIY kind of guy. This is HGTV on a cosmological level. This is God saying, I've invited you into a DIY project. Now, it's not just do it yourself, but it's do it along with me. The Holy Spirit has invited us into to be on his DIY team. And he's in the process of making all things new, not making all new things, not going to burn it all up and start over, but he's going to take what's already here and renovate it. He's going to recreate it. He began in you. Your own spirit that was dead is now alive and he's made you a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. The Bible says in the message translation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he that is united to the Messiah gets a fresh start. So God basically on his PC, which I don't believe God is a PC kind of God. I believe he has an apple. But 
I don't believe he has to hit Control-Alt-Delete. I believe he just has a one simple intuitive kind of a button where he refreshes, and it's a whole new, using the same system, but he's recreating every, and I'm just kidding if you're a PC person. Just, you know, it's that same old, this is just the new generation's Ford Chevy argument, okay? Some of you are Ford guys, some of you are Chevy guys, and both of you think you have the best truck, and some of the rest of us are just scratching our head going, who cares? And you're scratching your head right now at me about the computer thing. But that's just me. I'm a geek, so I like this stuff, the te technological stuff. Um, now, it's obvious that God is going to rejoin heaven and earth, and he's going to cause them to a new heaven, new earth. We are waiting. We read it in 2 Peter 3.13. We are waiting for the promise of a new heaven, new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. And I believe that God is in a renovation process. Uh, we're invited to partner with Him in the renovation process that begins in the individual human soul by the transformation of our minds through the Word of God. We then enter the reclamation project of seeing God rejoin heaven and earth into one once again. Now... There are all kinds of millennial views that starts to start to open here. Uh, there is the idea of a premillennial kingdom. And these words pre, post, and awe have to do with where Christ is going to come back. Some of you probably, a lot of you in this room may have never heard of anything outside of a premillennial view. And if you've been raised here in the Bible Belt South, we have the tendency to think that the only correct view is a dispensationalist idea of what we call a pre-tribulation rapture where Jesus comes and then snatches the church out. Seven years, we're gone. But by the way, let me just say, if that's the correct view, we're coming right back in seven years, right to the very same place we were at. Are you hearing me? Okay, so that means that we've got some responsibility to the planet. And if the kingdom is a literal 1,000 years... And I'm going to deliberately preach this in a way that you don't really know which, where, where I'm standing in this because there are godly men and women who embrace every one of these major millennial views, okay? There is this premillennial idea, classical premillennialism, which was taught for 1,800 years prior to the dispensationalists, which are the new kids on the block. By the way, that got introduced by a fellow by the name of John Nelson Darby in the 1830s. It really began to spread by the 1850s. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the most famous Baptist preacher in history, fought it and said it was a heresy. And he said it will create escapism. And I'm going to talk about that this morning. I'm not going to fight against, if that's your view of the end times, that's fine. We have, we have an appreciation for all of these around here because this is something I've learned. In no creed of the church throughout history do they ever make a statement, definitive statement about the end times because they leave the room open because every one of these views has an outrageously substantial amount of scripture that supports it, but there are holes in every one of them. There are questions that every one of these views does not answer. There's the dispensationalist group that's kind of by itself that was created in the 1800s with this idea of a pre-tribulation rapture, which you do not find anywhere for 18 centuries in church history. When you read Peter's message, when you read Paul's sermons, they never did say, hey, any minute Jesus is going to snatch us out of here. It's not there. Okay, That came into history in the mid-1800s, which happened to be about the same time that all the cults arose, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Christian scientists, Mary Baker Eddy, the spiritualists, all of these cults that arose at the same time. This 
concept hit the church about that time. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment when, I, when we compare some history here. Now, premillennial means you believe Jesus is coming back before a literal thousand years. Postmillennial is the idea that literally the kingdom was inaugurated at the manger of Bethlehem, but it's not consummated in totality until Jesus comes back at the end, postmillennial, which teaches that since literally the, the manger that the kingdom of God has been advancing, that it is now but not yet, okay? Now, there are plenty of scriptures I could stop and show you that, that version of end times, okay? And there's another group that teaches what's called an amillennial group, and this is by far the largest segment of Christianity that teaches this. So, some of you, it's unfortunate that growing up in the Bible Belt South, all you've ever heard is one view, and you think that's the only correct view, and you hear about three or four teachers on TV that I truly, I'll just say, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not mentioning names, but I wouldn't walk across the street to listen to them because they've been part of continuous date setting that we've seen happen and rapture dates have come and gone. I have a whole file back there in my file system. Some of them are full pages that have been taken out in USA Today. One was in 1992 when Jesus was coming back to take the church to heaven. And the day came and it gone, it's gone and it left. Uh, Edgar Wissanot, interestingly enough, and I'm not being cute by saying this, ironically was a rocket scientist, literally, and wrote the book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988, and he dated it September 13th to 15th. And there were friends of mine in the Sunday school class of Central Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas, who went and had their pets put to sleep the week before September 13th, 1988, because they didn't want their pets to be alive in the tribulation period. Okay, because at that time the, the Antichrist was tied to Russia and the big battle with the Middle East and the, the Battle of Armageddon was going to be between Russia and since then it's changed. It went to China and then it's left China. Now it's the Arab world and the Islamo-fascists. And just about every administration that a president comes in, we get a new Antichrist. Have you guys ever noticed that? <laughs> when I was growing up, it was Ronald Wilson Reagan who unfortunately happened to have three names with six letters. Ronald Wilson Reagan. R O. Okay, Lord, if I'm messing up here. <laughs> Ronald, R-O-N-A-L-D, six letters, W-I-L-S-O-N, Wilson, 66-R-E-A-G-A-N. Oh, my goodness, he's the Antichrist. The poor guy got Alzheimer's, and he's gone. He's on the other side of glory. I remember when Bill Clinton got elected, and we were just sure he was the Antichrist. He was acting like it in the White House anyway. <laughs> that alone. And some of you are sitting here today, are you just sure that, that President Obama is? Are you hearing me? Do you hear how many times we've seen this thing happen? And if you would just go home today and take out your um, computer and you would Google the word rapture dates, you would see that there have been about 200 dates that have passed and gone, gone by. And it's literally been a black eye on the body of Christ because it comes on CNN and MSNBC and all the major international cable and, and uh, network affiliates. And it predicts, okay, the Christians say they're going again. It was just last year that ha Harold Camping had caused all of his people all over the world, particularly here in the U.S., some of them sold their homes in various places for three or $400,000 you know, what would in this area might be a house of maybe $150,000 value. They'd sell that and literally go buy billboards in the major cities that they were in putting up to say that the end of the world was coming May, was it 17th, I think, last year? And, of course, the day came, 
And I stood up here the week before and said, I'll see y'all next Sunday. We'll still be here. And some of you are going, really? Well, do you know something we don't know? No, you know what? I just know the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. And we've been wrapped up in this whole, let me just say this, we've been wrapped up in this whole any minute rapture concept for years. And I just want you to think about something. The Bible says even the Son of Man doesn't know, which is kind of an enigma because Jesus is God. And if God knows everything, how can the Father know something the Son doesn't know? I don't understand it, but it's what the Bible says. So it says only the Father knows. Now, if the Father knows when it's going to be, that means it's a set time. If it's a set time, it can't be any minute. Well, Jesus is coming back. Okay, well, great. When he gets up from the throne, wherever it is, it's not going to be that It's not that big a trip. When he gets up, he's going to be here. So let me just say to you right now, I believe he's coming back. Say it. He believes. Point at me right now. Tell your neighbor. Say, he believes. He believes, he believes Jesus is coming back. Do not leave this building today and say, that preacher, I'm telling you, that, it's exciting there. They've got great music and the preaching's pretty good. But we finally got down to it. He doesn't believe in the second coming. That's not what I am saying, I believe Jesus is coming back in a physical body where there will be scars in his hands and a hole in his side and pierced feet and you can look in his eyes, which I don't think they'll be blue. That's a whole other tangent, another rabbit trail to chase and I'm not going to chase it. We've got all kinds of millennial views going on here. Now, let's, let's stop and define some eschatology. What is this word? This is a $100 word. Eschatology. Say it with me. Eschatology. Say the phrase up there. Eschatology matters. Eschatology, many times, is we talk about end times. And that's really kind of a misnomer because eschatology literally is translated the doctrine of last things. Just like Genesis is the seed plot of the Bible where we learn the first things when we move toward the book of Revelation, and, and forgive me, I don't want to be a stickler here, but I'm going to get up out of my seat on this one. I hate it when I hear people say, well, the book of Revelation says, first of all, it's not plural. It's a singular revelation. It's one revelation. It's not the revelation of the end times. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Too many times people are doing what we call newspaper exegesis where they open the front page and they take that and try to lay it somewhere over the Bible and go, okay, this is prophecy that's been fulfilled. And we're doing it backwards. We go to a current world event and then we try to go, oh, this must be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Instead of going to the Word first and putting on a right set of glasses and then looking back out into the world, it's almost like we're looking at a telescope backward and it just doesn't work. That's what the system is faulty. It's given us 200 rapture dates that have been set and passed. And I want to tell you, it's not just a matter of a date that's gone. It's a matter of a system that keeps producing that mess, that keeps re-identifying a new antichrist. As a matter of fact, I'm not looking for the coming glory of an antichrist. I only preach the coming glory of the Christ, and His name is Jesus. And when He shows up... Anything that is of an antichrist spirit will be consumed by the brightness of his presence is what the Bible says. Now, this is where I didn't do a good job last service because I, there's so much here that I can ask questions and make you go, oh, wow, that really doesn't work. And I'm not going to identify because I want you to know that I don't really care which system you buy into because there are good God-fearing people who love Jesus as much as we do in every one of those camps and no creed in history ever takes a definitive stand to say this is the way that the end will come about. 
Now, I don't want to offend you here, but you can read your whole Left Behind series as so long as you remember that that's not in scriptural authority. It's just somebody's prophetic speculation about from a particular one-sided view how that might happen. And they can make movies about it and they can sell tickets. And it's amazing to me how five or six of these guys keep rewriting these books and they keep resetting their dates and their timetables. And it went from 40 years after Israel became a nation in 48, 88 was supposed to be when everybody's going to get yanked out of here. And then it went to the Six-Day War in 67, and then, and then it went to 73, and everything's bumped back. So we've missed a 40-year generation from 80, 48 to 88, that passed. From 67 to 2007, that passed. And then from 73 right up to now, to 2013, where that's going to pass this year. Let me just prophesy to you right now. I see all of you New Year's Day, January 2014. We'll be around here. Do you hear what I'm saying? We will be here. We will be here. Now, I just want to tell you this. I believe that you ought to live your life if Jesus comes back in the next second ready to meet him. But you ought to think and you ought to prepare so that you work in preparation for a generation that's behind you. Some people have never saved money. They've, they've just squandered their lives on credit cards because they think, well, Jesus is coming back in the next couple of years and I'll just leave all of this debt for somebody else, those that are left in the tribulation. And it's just stupidness gone to seed. And we don't prepare. The Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We ought to be making preparation for those that are coming behind us. I believe if you thought the world was going to end today, you ought to go out and plant a tree. Think about it. We ought to be thinking about the generation that comes behind us. This is the reason, and I'm going to stop and get slightly political for a moment. It has nothing to do with a party. It's not a Democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. This is why the mess that our society is in due to our economic status and the budget of this nation and the debt that is out there right now, it is a curse of God on this nation if we don't turn this mess around and stop because our grandchildren will be paying off stuff that we've hocked up as a nation for generations to come. And it's because we're living with an escapist mentality thinking that somebody's just going to fix it for us and that's not the way it's going to happen. We're going to have to embrace reality and deal with the problem. Now, eschatology is a non-essential of the faith. Say that with me. Eschatology is a non-essential of the faith. That's a Latin word right there, caveat. That means a warning. A warning. Do not draw lines in the sand and get defensive over your view because I can name great names of people. Dr. Adrian Rogers was a dispensationalist premillennial Christian. I love him. Great man. I don't agree with his eschatology, but I think he was a great man of God. Loved Jesus. Multiple souls are in the kingdom of God because of his preaching. Okay? Dr. George Eldon Ladd, Dr. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest Bible preacher that ever lived, was a classical premillennialist and fought against what I just told you that Dr. Rogers preached, said it was a heresy because he was out there when it first became popular in the 1800s. Dr. R.C. Sproul, who is one of my heroes of the faith, is a postmillennialist. Okay? It's this idea of the kingdom is now, but it's not yet. And I'll be, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, I see that all over the scripture. Uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy, who formulated the evangelism explosion program that some of you grew up learning how to lead people to Christ with grace, man, God, Christ, faith. He was an amillennialist. He was a Presbyterian, pure gospel preaching man. Worldview like you cannot have imagined. 
Now, he was not the very extreme pessimistic amillennialist. He called himself an optimistic amillennialist. He believed there was some victory in history. Now, if I've confused you, that's all I'm going to do when it comes to that is just to tell you that every one of those men that I just mentioned are great men of God who love Jesus and they agree that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, uh, in Christ alone. They preach the pure, unadulterated gospel, but they don't agree on the end times. Okay, That means that it's not an essential of the faith. What you believe about the end times does not make a difference in whether or not you are saved or you will stay saved. God didn't save any of us because our theology was right. He saves us and then He teaches us how to get a proper worldview based on the Word of God from that point. So my whole point in sharing this with you this morning is that uh, eschatology is one of those things that is what we call a non-essential of the faith. The Bi- uh, we learned in the, in the Reformation, in the essentials unity, the Apostles' Creed gives us 12 essentials. God is Father, Creator. Jesus is His Son, born of a virgin. Let me just tell you right now, if you want to be a part of Victory Church, we will take you through our Foundations class, and I'm very clear on one of those nights where I tell you what we believe. These are the essentials of the faith, I love you, I want to embrace you as a friend, but if you don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin, then I'm just going to be totally honest with you. You're not in any sense of the word a biblical Christian. I'm sorry. You, you, you know, you, you don't want to believe that? Let, let me just tell you, we'll still love you at victory, but I'm not going to take time to argue with you over that. The blood of Jesus saves you. I will not argue over the blood of Jesus. There are 12 things the Apostles' Creed lays out. The forgiveness of sins, the Holy Catholic Church. Little c does not mean Roman Catholic as in the Pope that they're trying to elect right now. But little c, little c, look it up in your dictionary. Little c Catholic means the universal church. It's the holy universal church of Jesus all over the world. Okay? The resurrection of the dead, the forgiveness of sins, so on and so forth. There are 12 things the Apostles' Creed says that are essentials of the faith that you have to embrace. Eschatology or end times is nowhere in that mix. You can believe any one of those and we will love you at victory. This is the issue that I want to speak to. Do you hear what I just said? You can believe in a pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib rapture, a post-trib rapture, a no-rapture. You can be premillennial, you can be postmillennial, you can be amillennial. I really don't care. Because I've just shown you great men and women of God who all teach a particular view or the other and they don't agree with each other and every one of them have a whole cache of scriptures to back up their view. I will not draw lines in the sand over something that really nobody knows until we go through it. Are you hearing me? Now let me just say this. If, if I'm wrong about this idea of the whole seven years thing and we do go up, guess what? I don't have anything to lose. I'll, I'll find you on the way up and I'll say, hey, I'm sorry, I missed it. Guess what? We're going to miss all the trouble. We're being snatched out of here. Hey, ain't it great? But what if I'm right and we're not going anywhere and we're going to deal with a lot of stuff? I edit all the time deal with a lot of junk that we're going to have that comes our way in the way of just society headed down the cesspool. And we just finally decide, because there's nowhere in the Bible where you hear Peter stand up and preach or Paul write to a church 
that tells them to embrace a hold the fort mentality and retreat from culture and draw back and just create your own little subculture in a ghetto over here called Christian civilization apart from everybody else. We're to be engaging the culture, very active out there involved in the process of proclaiming the gospel aggressively. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. The problem with eschatology is that your view of the future will affect how you live in the present. Read that out loud with me. Your view of the future will affect how you live in the present. What you think that's going to be, if you've heard all your life, and let me just say this to you, if you really believe Jesus was coming back any minute, why haven't you knocked on the neighbor's door across the street and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus? You don't believe that. You don't really believe that. You don't believe He's coming back any minute. Am I telling you the truth? I'm I'm serious. If we really are convicted of that, then then as soon as you hit these doors, you better go out there and grab every person by the the, the nap of their collar and shake them and go, dude, you better turn your life over to Jesus. He's coming any minute. Do you know that? And then probably wait for some folks in little white coats to come pick you up. (laughs) There's a way to do it. But what I'm saying is if you really believe that, you would be on the prowl out there trying to convince people. But the fact is it's lulled us into a complacency. It's had the opposite effect. The the church was the most aggressive in the 1700s, 1800s when nobody had even heard of dispensationalism yet. In 18 centuries, you don't find the idea of a rapture period. It's not there. You don't find it in Christian history. And they're out there preaching, we've a story to tell to the nations. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings. And it was an aggressive vision. Something has happened in the last hundred years to the church where we've retreated into our holy huddles and the salt is not in the world. It's hanging out in the salt shaker, rubbing elbows with all the other salt crystals. (laughs) Having a good time together where everybody, for the most part, thinks like we do and dresses like we do and talks like we do. And that's my whole goal is to mess up that whole thing and have everybody in the room just be completely different. Oh, that's what what a crazy quilt of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Are you following me this morning? And and we've retreated. The problem of this is that what this has produced in our generation is that it has given us, the American church has bought into the idea of escapism. Everybody say escapism. This is the Google definition of escapism. The tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. Now, you know... I like to escape like anybody else. I like to go to movies with my wife. I'll go to the gym. Um, I like to read a book. It's not always serious theological stuff. Sometimes it's just a mystery or it's, it's a drama, thriller, action type thing. And it's just, I can escape for a little while. It just pulls me out of the pressure. But God never intended for the church to live in a constant fantasy land of an escape. You cannot get on the platform of a conference in China and preach the American version of a pre-tribulation rapture. They'll laugh you off the platform and tell you, you American Christians don't even understand. We've been under tribulation for 50 years of communism. 
we can die and be a martyr because we own a copy of the Holy Bible. We're meeting underground in churches 100 million strong, a tenth of the population of China now with the kind of Christianity that America used to know. Don't shout me down. Places all over the world in Latin, Latino, liberation theology, trying to throw off the, the, the tyranny of, of the dictators all over South America, dying on the spot, tribulated because they try to preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the church in America says, well, we're not going to have to encounter any trouble. We'll just get snatched out before it all starts. And it's never made sense to me in Ephesians chapter 6 for Paul the Apostle to tell us that Jesus did the finished work on the cross to equip us and got up out of the grave, resurrected, overcoming life over death to equip us with a whole armor, a helmet of salvation for us to think differently, a sword of the Spirit to offensively deal with the enemy, a shield of faith to quench fiery darts, a belt of truth to hold, gird up everything and hold all this stuff together, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes that are labeled peace. You talk about a swoosh in the kingdom of God. Nike ain't got nothing on God's shoes. And when you walk up in that, the enemy thinks it's God who showed up. Why would the Apostle Paul tell us to get girded up, to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, and to put on the whole armor of God and stand, stand therefore, having done all to stand, stand in the day of evil. But then when you just get ready for whatever evil day is approaching, you just know that you're going to get snatched out, armor and all. Just get sucked up out of your armor, lay it on the ground. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, please. I don't want to offend anybody. That's probably on a bumper somewhere. <laughs> Are you hearing me this morning? I don't care if you believe that, but I don't want you to believe the fruit it produces, which is escapism, that we don't have to meet the problems of the planet head on. Every one of those people I listed all believe something different about end times, and they're great gospel-preaching believers who've led multiple souls to the kingdom. They don't agree on it, but I'm going to tell you something. What's different in every one of their messages is some of them are not preaching anything that produces the fruit of escapism. And this is what has happened. Um, uh, comparing history, you look at the first disciples. There never was this idea of we're not going to have to impact culture, that we're not going to have a problem. They weren't looking to get snatched out. When you read to the early church, you go 18 centuries, and there's never a concept of this rapture where the church leaves the planet. And if I'm wrong, like I told you, I have nothing to lose. I'll find you and apologize on the way up. But if history is correct and if the Word of God is correct, nobody in this room, if you come to Christ and you sit down and read the New Testament through, do you get up from it with the idea that the church is going to be snatched out for seven years and then brought back. You have to wrangle verses from all these places and create and concoct all this kind of crazy notion to make that idea work. And you know what's the crazy thing? Is these guys who've promoted this stuff and rewritten their books every time it changed, the big enemy's no longer Russia, it's China. No, it's not China. Now it's the Middle East. It's the Arab, it's the Islamofascists. Every time there's a skirmish in the Middle East, they re-release a 15th edition of their book and, and Christians like dumb sheep go buy it. And these guys that are telling you the whole place is going to burn up have made multi-million dollar land investments in real estate, some of them on their fifth marriages that are on TV, that are giving you prophetic reports. Man, it's quiet in this room. I'm not 
When I say that, I'm, I, I, I do not in any kind of way want to imply that I'm judging, and I'm not going to mention the brother's name. He's on his fifth marriage. Now, he can't make his own housework, but he's going to sell you a scheme on how the whole world's going to end, and you're going to believe that nonsense? He's going to tell you, don't store up any treasure on this side of the planet, but he owns multiple millions of dollars of land holdings. Yeah, I could name names right now. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And the sheep have been shorn from it and they have been, they've had the wool pulled over their eyes. And we've sucked it up and we've believed it and we've retreated from the world. And the world is in the shape it's in because the church has not been doing what the church was called to do for the last 100 years. Don't shout me down now. Somebody help me. Say amen. All right. I got to roll. The fallout of the storm produced a mentality of retreat where no longer we no longer engage the culture with the life-giving, comprehensive gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't have to skip this point. The 20th century, the historical, theological, perfect storm, all that has a lot to do with the challenge that came in the 1800s regarding the validity of Scripture. It came from the, the higher criticism school in, the, in Germany. Darwin's evolutionary theory hit at the same time. Christians retreated because fundamentalism was birthed and it breeded an anti-intellectualism. 1950s, it took 100 years for the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche to hit the common culture, the God is dead idea. He'd written it 100 years ago. I grew up hearing Vestal Goodman sing, If God is dead, who's this living? And the only way Vestal could do it, she was an amazing voice. If God is dead, who's this living in my soul? And she was challenging a culture. But the sad thing is, is that really only spoke to the church. The church was not prepared to be able to speak to the claims that were being made, starting to infiltrate our public schools, certainly was in our universities. And what's in the university will be the leadership of the next generation. What's in the seminary of one generation that comes into our pulpits will be in the pew in the next generation. And for a hundred years we've heard people come out of seminaries that no longer even believe in the real resurrection. It was just a myth. And the gospel really is just nice, a kind of a nice package of hope for us to sort of socially try to bring some improvement to the world. And to that I want to say nonsense. Jesus Christ was real. He died. He got up from the grave. The thing that separates Christianity from the rest of the other religions of the world is that it is so rooted in history. It is verifiable. Come on, somebody say amen. Now, one more time, I want you to make sure you understand me. Eschatology is not an essential of the faith. What you believe about the end times will not affect your salvation. I don't care what you believe. You can embrace any of those views and you can be loved and be my friend at Victory Church. I just don't want any of them producing escapism in you because we cannot do what God's called us to do in the Delta if we have a hold the fort mentality. If we think the darkness out there is going to get into our light, if we don't get out of this room out there where the darkness is, I have four things I want you to see quickly this morning. Are you getting anything out of this message? Gospel principles. Number one, the church is to occupy until He comes, not be preoccupied with when He's coming. 
Read that with me. The church is to occupy until he comes, not be preoccupied with when he's coming. Literally in Luke, it says in the ESV, engage in business until I come. Now, if they thought he was coming back any second, there's no way they would take money and try to do any kind of a long-term investment. It's the parable of the minas, the parable of the pounds, whatever translation you read it in. Jesus has ten servants. He gives every one of them a pound. He comes back. One of them has taken that one pound. He's invested it. He's turned it into ten pounds. God says, be faithful over ten cities. Rule. You've been faithful over this little. Now go rule over ten cities. One servant had taken one pound. He turned it into five pounds. Jesus says, you've been faithful over little. Now go rule five cities. So it's the whole point of occupying, buy and sell, trade, get involved in your community. Don't have this any minute mentality where you can just run up debt and not think about your future. Because the fact of the matter is, is we've, I've been hearing my whole life that he was going to come back this decade. He's going to come back this decade and every decade's passed. I do believe, I want to I underscore this for those of you that are hearing this morning and doubting it. I believe Jesus Christ is coming back literally in a second coming. Now, the whole issue with the rapture is, is that it technically makes his second coming the third coming. And again, I want to point out, if we do leave here in seven years, we're coming right back. It's all going to take place right here, right here. Heaven, the book of Revelation, singular, chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says, and it, the, the heavenly city was coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. I'm not flying up to it, it's coming down to me. Granny's coming with it. All of our loved ones are coming here. Jude says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints. When Jesus comes back, that's the army riding behind Him right there. Every eye shall see. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Are you following me? There should be a theology of economics. Now that's gotten turned into prosperity preaching these days where basically a guy says, if you'll put $100 in, God will give you a hundredfold return. I need to buy a new jet. <laughs> God wants to bless you. Do not go out of here and say that I am battling anything of the, what the Bible says about prosperity. But the junk you see on television is not the gospel. About five of you agree with that. That's okay. What do you say to the people who are doing that the best they can wherever they can all over the world and they're struggling in dire poverty? You teach them how to take what they have and turn it into the best they can for the gospel. Number two, the church is to steward the earth, not ignore it thinking it will be all burned up. Genesis 1 says we're to subdue it. We're to take dominion over it. You know what? If we, if we were real Bible people we would have a theology of environmentalism. We would understand that the, the, the crazy environmental notions that have been put out here today, we cannot go and build on a piece of property because a horn-billed owl shows up, but yet we can kill 55 million babies of the human species. Somebody, don't shout me down. All right, we need to take care of the planet. Genesis 1 means we should have some creation care. We need to be fruitful and multiply. We need A godly man will take care of his animals. We will love the creation. Number three. Number three, the church is to engage the culture, not retreat from it. Listen, Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are sitting here in a salt shaker, and God wants to shake you out out there in that culture where salt lands on raw meat and it keeps it preserved. It stops corruption from spreading. That means you have to get out there. You are light and you're going into a place where there's darkness. Are you hearing me? There is no hold the fort mentality in that. There is no escapism in that. Oh, we got to get out of here before it gets so bad and Jesus will get us out of here before the darkness gets so thick. Oh, hogwash. Be a light. Go turn the light on out there in the culture. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Number four, and I'm finished. The church is the instrument God has designed or purposed to advance his kingdom. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Saints, there's something aggressive about what Jesus just said to Peter. I have gates on my little courtyard that Greg Lackey built and those gates are there to protect what I have inside. Gates are not offensive weapons. They don't jump off the hinges and come attack you. If somebody decides they're going to come in my backyard, they have to deal with the architectural integrity of those gates. There's a lock on it, okay? Now, the gates are the gates of hell. Gates of hell are there to guard what's on the inside of hell. And the Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So what is that saying to you in that message? That means the church is not to be hiding over here and little, oh, Jesus, please hurry, come get us out of this mess we're in before it gets too bad and, and, and all of our love grows so cold, oh God. But the church is to be a, we've a story to tell the nations, aggressive kind of a vision. of The kingdom of God is coming. Repent and believe. And we're demonstrating it and we're showing it and we're, we're living lives that are solid and stable. Now, nobody's perfect yet, but God's working on us and we're getting some victory over our bondages. And every one of us in the room has a testimony. We all can say, look, I once was, but now I am. Whatever your testimony is, that's what you should be using aggressively to pour the salt out over the people that are around you. Turn the light on in the middle of the darkness. This is what I was, but God's changed my heart. And the gates of hell are sitting there. And the Bible says they shall not prevail against the church. What that means is we're supposed to take a battering ram and march right down there to the gates of the hell, wherever they are in our city, in our culture. And we're to knock down some doors so we can rescue some souls and some minds and some institutions and creation and everything around us for the glory of God. Those, those gates are not impervious. They're not impregnable. They can be broken through. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. 
There is no retreat mentality in that. There is no escapism in that. It is an aggressive vision that says we will take the world for the kingdom of God. Come on, somebody, give the Lord praise. Did you receive that this morning? Come on, let's praise God. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Bring the lights down if you would. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Jesus, I just confess to you right now, I don't know how this thing's going to end. I confess that to you. I confess that to these people. I remind us that only the Father knows the hour. And since you know that hour, Father, it is a set one. It's not some arbitrary, you're waiting to decide, but you know specifically when it's going to take place. And God, we want to be men and women that are faithful, occupying until you come. Instead of be, being preoccupied with when you're going to get here. Because I believe when you get up, it's not going to take you that long to get here, Jesus. Until then, you are seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible says, Jesus, that there in that place you ever live to make intercession for the saints. I believe that there's a man, a woman in this room, Jesus, that you're praying for right now and they've sensed a spark of faith come alive in their heart in the numbness of their personal existence, in the deadness of sin, in the hopelessness of a bondage that they've not been able to break. Some faith has arisen, the possibility of true victory in Christ. The gospel is a message of victory. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are breathing life into a dead heart right now, resurrecting them, giving them regeneration, a new birth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that as you move and draw and call men and women with the gospel call, you call your sheep by name in this moment, in this service. Some of them, Lord, you've been brooding over for weeks and months, and they've been a guest in the, as the first time at this service this morning, Lord, and you know who you're speaking to. They know that you're talking to them right now, sitting in this room. My brother, my sister, heads bowed, nobody looking around. If you would like to cross the line of faith today and say, Jesus, be my Savior, I sense you doing something in my heart and my life today, and I want to respond to that. I want to reach out and take hold of the gift of God by faith. The Bible says that if we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth that God raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. That's all the requirement is. It's not earning it. It's not working for it. Nobody in the room is good enough. If I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell. But Jesus' mercy comes today as a gift. His grace beyond that comes today as a gift. If you just like to slip up your hand, nobody's going to call you to the front. Nobody's going to embarrass you. By slipping up your hand, you're just saying, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I'm in that place. I want to cross the line of faith. Please pray for me. And I'm the only one that's going to see that. Just slip your hand up. Anybody in the room? Yes, several around the room. Thank you. Those of you that raised your hand right now, all you have to do is there are six words, Jesus save me, I trust you. You're turning from your past and you're turning to God in faith. Jesus save me, I trust you. In that is the forgiveness of sins. In that is the filling of the Holy Spirit coming into your heart and life. Make that your prayer right now, those of you who raised your hands. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for men and women who are responding to this message today of the hope of true victory. 
that they no longer retreat or run from, but they stare it in the face and they do that now by the grace of God out of a new life because they put their trust in you and they say, Jesus, save me. I trust you. Lord, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. Others in the room this morning, you've known Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but something got ignited in your heart. And you know what? There may have even been more questions created than I answered today, and that's fine. If I can push you into the Word and it will make you start to ask questions, then the Holy Spirit will be your teacher. That's all I want to do anyway. So if you have more questions, that's fine. Just say, Jesus, teach me. Give me the Holy Spirit to teach me. Those of you that are, that are Christians in the room, you, you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Something sparked in your heart today that says, you know what, I need to recapture a real aggressive a, a passion for Jesus again, like the pastor's talking about. Because I've, I've kind of had a let me hide and hold the fort, a kind of a retreat mentality. God says he wants to deliver us from that. Christians this morning, if that's you, God's igniting a fresh vision of an aggressive faith on the inside of you. Would you slip up your hand? I want to pray for you. Yes, thank you. I see about five or six hands around the room. Father, in the name of Jesus, for everybody here, for these five or six who raised their hands, pour out on us, oh God. I've seen your work in others, and I want you to work in me as we sang this morning, oh God. You're all I want. You're all I've ever needed. Pour into me, Holy Ghost. I want more of you. I'm hungry for you, Jesus. I'm not satisfied. I don't want to just go through the motions. Inundate me. <laughs> Fill me up afresh. Baptize me in the Holy Ghost. God, everyone in this room, make us to be salt and light in the world around us in Jesus' name. We'll be careful to give you all the praise, all the glory in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, would you put your hands